You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am now persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, um, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony our Lord... Sorry. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought to life and immortality, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Thank you. Thanks, Steph. Good morning again, everyone. Uh, There's an outline of my talk uh, on the welcome card that Tim mentioned earlier under the Sundays tab. So if that's useful for you to to follow along, hopefully I'll be clear enough anyway. Uh, But if you find having an outline useful, then you can find it there on the welcome card. Uh, Please do have the the passage open in front of you. That would make it easier for you to check if what I'm saying is what God's saying in in the Bible or not. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you for this time we can share together this morning. Uh, We pray that we'd have a real sense uh, by the power of your spirit that you are speaking to us, uh, encouraging us and strengthening us uh, to stand and live and speak for Christ, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Probably all of us have a a kind of instinctive sense uh, that last words matter more than other words. You know, if you know it's the, the last time you're going to speak with someone before they uh, move on to a different job or they leave home, if you're sitting by someone's bed in a hospital or at their house, at a nursing home, and you know it's the last time you'll probably speak to them before they die, then there's a sense in which those words matter more than other words. Last words really, really matter. I've been thinking about that a lot as uh, I've been preparing these sermons on 2 Timothy. Uh, There'll be five sermons over the next kind of seven weeks. I'll have a a couple of weeks off. Uh, I've been thinking about it first because these will be the last sermons that I give as a pastor here at DPC. I've given a lot of sermons over the last kind of 10 years, but these are the last ones. So I've been thinking and praying, uh, Lord, could you possibly make these sermons really count, really matter? Last words matter. I've also been thinking about this because here in 2 Timothy, we have the last words ever written by the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, Paul's in his prison cell in Rome as he writes these words. Uh, He knows that he's going to be executed probably within days. Uh, So in this letter, we have his very last words. Uh, And what we see in 2 Timothy uh, is that Paul writes only about what is most important to him, uh, about his deepest convictions and passions. And what we see in 2 Timothy is that even as Paul faces death, what is most important to him is the gospel. The gospel being the good news about what God has done through us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that his own ministry is coming to an end. It's nearly over. And he wants to ensure that the precious truth of the gospel that Christ entrusted to him will now be entrusted to others that it would be preserved, that it would grow, that it would be strengthened, that that people uh, might become Christians across the face of the earth. Uh, This is Paul's concern, uh, that the gospel would be preserved, that the gospel would be passed on to others. Uh, But he also knows that doing that work of preserving and passing on the gospel is incredibly hard. I mean, he's writing from prison, right? He's going to be executed for the sake of this work. He knows this from his first-hand experience. He knows that being a Christian and being in Christian ministry uh, usually, almost always, leads to being rejected and marginalised, sometimes leads to imprisonment, sometimes leads to death, as it soon would for him. Uh, So in this passage that Paul's writing to Timothy today, Paul writes to Timothy about the power to keep speaking and suffering for Christ. He's lived his life speaking for Christ, making a stand for Christ. He's ending his life suffering for Christ. He will die for Christ. And he writes to Timothy about the power to keep speaking and suffering for Christ. It's really hard to speak for Christ, isn't it? Uh, Nearly 20 years ago, I remember uh, sitting in my first year philosophy class at La Trobe Uni up in Bendigo, uh, and I was absolutely silent in that class. And to be honest, the reason I was silent is because I was ashamed to be a Christian. I didn't want people to know that I was a Christian. I knew that if I went public with certain beliefs that I had as a Christian, I would be mocked and marginalised in that class. So I kept silent. I wasn't prepared to speak for Christ because I didn't want to suffer for Christ. Maybe you've had situations like that in your own life. The reality is, in the past 20 years, it's only gotten more difficult to be a kind of public Christian, to live the Christian life and openly speak about your faith. It's only gotten harder to do that. Uh, Pete Leslie, in his sermon, I think, uh, last year or at some point, quoted uh, from a book by Stephen McAlpine uh, called Being the Bad Guys. Stephen McAlpine is an Australian author, uh, and he has this to say about, I guess, the place of church and Christians in Australian culture and how it's changed. He says the church used to be considered uh, to be a force for good in Australia, uh, but this is changing rapidly. Christians are now often seen... Uh, Sorry, Uh, Christians are now often seen as the bad guys, losing both respect and influence. In our post-Christian culture, uh, how do we keep offering the good news of the gospel to those, uh, to those around us uh, who consider it not only to be wrong, but also to be possibly dangerous? 
Uh, 20 years ago when I was at uni, uh, my beliefs as a Christian, for the most part, were considered to be a bit outdated. It was kind of like, oh, isn't it nice? You know, isn't it quaint that Aaron still believes in traditional Christianity? But no one thought my beliefs were harmful or oppressive. No one thought my beliefs were dangerous to other people. But that's increasingly the case for us who are seeking to live as Christians. Uh, If you think I'm being over the top, uh, maybe just think back just a couple of years ago to when it was discovered that the new CEO of the Essendon Football Club, Andrew Thorburn, uh, attended a, a kind of mainstream evangelical Anglican church, City on a Hill. Uh, The press discovered a a couple of blogs written by a a pastor from Andrew's church, not by him, but by a pastor at his church 10 years prior. Uh, uh, The the pastor of those blogs uh, admitted that maybe he could have chosen his language a little more graciously. Perhaps in hindsight, he might have done that. A lot of us wrote things 10 years ago that we might have changed a bit. But for the most part, He was just unpacking what Christians have believed for more than 2,000 years about homosexual practice and abortion. That's what the two blogs were about. Really just standard Christian teaching on those topics. And yet the ex-Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews said this about those blogs. He said the content in the blogs uh, was absolutely appalling. He said that kind of intolerance, hatred and bigotry is just wrong and should not be tolerated. This is not a plea uh, for Christians to once again reclaim power at the centre of society, to be influenced like we deserve. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is let's be aware of the context in which we live. To be a Christian in our culture is increasingly to be seen as one of the bad guys. To be seen as someone who, intentionally or not, probably holds views that will be dangerous and harmful to other people. In that context, it is really, really hard to speak and suffer for Christ. If you're my age, you've probably had 40 years of it not being too bad to speak for Christ. I look at my kids. Ten, seven, four... It's going to be way harder for them to speak and suffer for Christ. So where do we get the power and the strength to do this? That's what Paul's writing to Timothy about today. So please have the passage open first in verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at Paul's greeting to Timothy. Paul's greeting first, you'll see in verse 1 there, that Paul describes himself as an apostle. Uh, That means that Paul was someone who personally witnessed Jesus raised from the dead and he was personally sent out by Jesus to speak and act on his behalf. So Paul has this unique authority as an apostle, which is important because throughout Paul's letter to Timothy, he's going to teach Timothy and correct Timothy. He's going to call Timothy to follow his example. And that's something that's particularly appropriate for an apostle to do, a kind of authorised representative of Jesus. And notice in verse 1 that Paul says he's an apostle according to the promise that is in Christ, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise of life in Christ Jesus is another way of Paul speaking about the gospel. What is the good news that God promises us 
in Jesus Christ, his son. He promises us life. He promises us that if you believe in Jesus, you'll experience a new spiritual life now, a new quality of life, and later you'll experience a new physical life, raised, a bodily resurrection to be with God and his people forever. This is the promise of life. That is found in Christ Jesus. So what do we see right from the very first sentence of Paul's letter as he faces death in just a few days time, going to be executed by the Romans? What's at the forefront of his mind? It is the gospel. It's that more and more people might find life in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, we see that Paul's writing to Timothy, who he describes as his dear son, uh, there's real love and affection between Paul and Timothy. They, they really, 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 really close friends. Uh, Timothy's not Paul's biological son. He's his kind of what you might call his spiritual son, his son in the faith. Uh, Timothy became a Christian under Paul's ministry. And Paul kind of adopted him to teach him and train him up to be a Christian minister. And if you read 1 Timothy, which I encourage you to do later on today... Uh, or this week, if you read 1 Timothy, you'll see in chapter 1, verse 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, that Paul had left Timothy in a city called Ephesus to pastor the church that he had planted there. So this is Paul's greeting in verses 1 and 2. Then uh, in verses 3 to 5, we've got uh, four thanksgivings that Paul gives. So the key words in the verses 3 to 5 are words to do with remembering or recalling and words to do with thanks. Remember and thanks. So first you'll see in verse 3 that Paul thanks God as he remembers his connection with his ancestors. Notice verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did, my ancestors. So even though most of Paul's fellow Jews hadn't become Christians... Paul says, in serving Jesus, I'm serving the same God as them. Which is fine, that's kind of nice, but why does Paul thank God for that? I thank God, Paul says, as I serve the same God as my forefathers did. If you read through 2 Timothy, you'll see that during Paul's time of imprisonment, as he nears the end of his life, he's conscious that basically everyone's deserted him. Uh, he feels really lonely. Uh, there's a few times where he speaks openly about the fact that he longs for his dear friend Timothy to come and be with him. So I think as Paul reflects on his loneliness and how he feels alone, he thanks God because he remembers that even when he feels alone, he's not truly alone. Why? Because he's serving the same God as his spiritual ancestors. His spiritual ancestors are right there with him, cheering him on as he seeks to speak and suffer for Christ. And I think this is something we need to remember too, partly because of the, the cultural context in which we live, where I think often told uh, to look uh, on our historical ancestors, whether they be spiritual ancestors or physical ancestors, uh, we're, we're sort of told to look on them from a posture of superiority and judgment. Right? Because society's constantly progressing, we're more enlightened than people were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Uh, so we look on them with what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Or we assume that because we're 50 years on, that we're somehow better than them and we can judge them and critique them. 
we rarely look on our ancestors, as Paul does here, with humility and thankfulness. But I think as Christians, I'm not saying that there aren't things that our ancestors did that we ought to critique and judge, like that some of our ancestors did horrible things. Or we want to distance ourselves from those things. And yet as Christians, we ought not cut ourselves off from history altogether. Because we believe in a God who acts within history. In particular, in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Our God is a God who's always acted in history in the lives of his people. So like Paul, we can thank God that as we seek to serve Jesus, our spiritual ancestors are cheering us on. They're not just names on a page. People like Abraham and Deborah and Mary and Moses and Paul himself are right there with us saying, go for it. Stand for Christ. Speak for Christ. Suffer for Christ. That, I mean, what a great thing to have a cheer squad. Thousands of years of believers cheering you on. Paul thanks God for that as he remembers he serves the same God as his ancestors. Uh, Second, Paul thanks God as he remembers Timothy in his prayers. Uh, You'll see there, Paul says, uh, I thank God, uh, in verse 3, I thank God uh, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. I won't spend much time here, but I wonder if there's someone for you that's a little bit like Timothy with Paul. Someone for whom when you come to a time of praying, they often pop into your mind, they're on your heart and mind, and you find yourself thanking God for them. God, I just thank thank you for this person or that person. If there is someone who pops into your mind like that, why don't you write their name down so that you can tell them like Paul does with Timothy here. Often I think we're thankful for people, but we don't tell people that we're thankful for them, and so they miss out on being encouraged. And we miss out on being encouraged when they say, wow, that was really great that you told me that. Paul thanks God as he remembers Timothy in his prayers. A third, he thanks God in verse 4 as he recalls Timothy's tears. I recall your tears, Paul says. We don't know for sure, but Timothy probably shed these tears the last time he said goodbye to Paul. They're really close and... Timothy honestly didn't know if he was ever going to see Paul again. So it was a really emotional moment. He just broke down and cried. An application here, particularly for the blokes, have one for the women in a little bit, but particularly for the blokes, uh, notice how Paul and Timothy, as a couple of Christian guys, have absolutely no issue expressing their emotions to one another. Now, I know there's more space for this uh, with younger guys, you know, like they tend to be more sensitive and comfortable expressing emotions. And uh, and overall, there's going to be different men with different personalities. You know, some uh, men are really comfortable kind of being right out there with their emotions and others are a little bit more kind of carrying their emotions deep inside. Uh, I'm not saying all men have to be the same. But I am saying, and I want us to be convinced as a church community, that it doesn't diminish our masculinity one bit to openly cry with a brother in Christ. That's what Timothy did with Paul. It doesn't diminish your masculinity one bit to tell a brother in Christ that you long to be with them, that you love them, that you miss them, that you'd love to see them again. Right? These are things that we need to be 
convinced of because we've bought into a whole lot of kind of cultural baggage about what it means to be a man. Right? Paul thanks God as he remembers Timothy's tears. And then he thanks God, verse 5, uh, as he remembers Timothy's sincere faith. I have been reminded, notice the, the, the remembering language again, I have been reminded, Paul says, of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and, and your mother Eunice, uh, and uh, I am persuaded now lives in you also. Uh, Paul thanks God for Timothy's sincere faith. Again, if you read First and Second Timothy together, uh, Timothy's sincere faith stands out because lots of people who'd previously said, yeah, I'm the real deal as a Christian, I'm a genuine Christian, a whole bunch of those people have now walked away from Christ. And so Paul's full of thanks as he remembers Timothy's sincere faith. He's saying, Timothy, you're the real deal as a Christian. I've seen you persevere in speaking and suffering for Christ. And you'll notice just as Paul's service is kind of a continuation of the service of his ancestors, Timothy's faith is a continuation of the faith of his ancestors, particularly Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother. So this is the, the application for, for women that I mentioned. If you're here and you're a Christian mother uh, and grandma or grandmother, I'm sorry, I'm not meaning to exclude you if you're not a mother or grandmother, uh, but this is particularly for those who are a Christian mother or grandmother. I wonder if you sometimes find yourself thinking as you look at your children or grandchildren, uh, what could I possibly do to help, these, uh, to help these children or grandchildren come to trust and follow Jesus? And maybe sometimes you feel particularly disheartened about that if you're a single mum or if you're a, a mum uh, and your uh, other men in your life or your husband are, are really not supportive of your faith. It's easy to feel discouraged and think, what hope have my kids got? What hope have my grandchildren got? Well, if that's what you sometimes think, why don't you take heart from Lois and Eunice? I suspect Timothy's mother and grandmother had some of those same thoughts and anxieties as Timothy was growing up. No doubt that they didn't think they were anything special. They would have prayed hard for Timothy. They would have sought to, to teach him from the Bible who Jesus was. But I'm sure they felt like they were bumbling along and they never really were quite sure how Timothy was going to turn out. And yet, Paul says, they had a massive impact, not just on Timothy's sincere faith, but on the work of the gospel through Timothy. So if you're a Christian mum or, or a Christian grandmother, please be encouraged and persevere. In it. Your work is vital work. So that's Paul's thanksgivings, four thanksgivings. And then in verses 6 to 8, we have three commands. And the first command, you'll see there in verse 6, Paul commands Timothy, verse 6, to fan into flame the gift of God that is in him. You'll see there, verse 6, that, that Paul uh, says that Timothy received this gift when uh, Paul and perhaps others laid hands on him and, and prayed for him. Uh, probably this is uh, when Timothy was publicly set aside, kind of ordained or appointed to be the pastor in Ephesus. And Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you've got to remember that in that moment, God gave you the essential gift that you need to carry out your ministry in Ephesus. You've got all that you need. What is this gift? 
Well, I think it must be the gift of God's Spirit. I say that first because you'll see Timothy says, uh, Paul says, fan this gift into flame. And you might remember that throughout the Bible, God's Spirit is often pictured as a flame. Like Acts chapter 2, when God's Spirit is, uh, comes down upon God's people, uh, it's tongues of fire, right? Uh, also, look in verse 7, the start of verse 7. Paul starts verse 7. Uh, by referring to the gift of God's Spirit. So what's Paul saying to Timothy? He's saying, Timothy, I know that you feel weak and timid and powerless, and you might feel like throwing in the towel in Ephesus. It's hard to keep speaking and suffering for Christ. And yet, you're not making full use of the gift that God has given you. The gift of God's Spirit, like any fire must be stirred up, it must be fed, it must be fanned into flame. Paul knows that if Timothy's going to keep speaking and suffering for Christ in Ephesus, uh, the, the spirit of God in his life has to be more like a bonfire and less like a candle. I think that's, really, I think that's what he's saying. Timothy, fan it into flame. And he's saying that because he knows what Timothy's like. Uh, he knows that Timothy is the sort of person, uh, you'll see there in verse 7, uh, that uh, he's timid, he's quite young. We know from elsewhere in First and Second Timothy, he's someone who's very, very conscious of how weak and frail he is. Uh, Paul knows that Timothy's someone who, uh, when people uh, oppose him or reject him or hurt him, is likely to find it hard to keep loving them. Like, that's understandable. But it's something you have to do in Christian ministry. He knows that under pressure, Timothy might be a bit tempted to lose focus or discipline in his ministry. So what does Paul say in verse 7? He reminds Timothy that the spirit God has given him, what does the spirit give? Power, love and self-discipline. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God's spirit in your heart, in your life. And even when you're weak and frail and, and timid, you remember that the power of God's Spirit is displayed in and through your weakness. The Spirit of God gives power, Paul says. When people hurt you or oppose you, Paul says, and you think, I, I just can't keep loving these people and serving these people and teaching these people the gospel... Paul says, fan into flame God's spirit. What does God's spirit do? He assures us of God's love for us in Christ, that we can cry out to him as our heavenly father. And it's as we're assured of God's love for us in Christ that we can keep loving others. Fan into flame God's spirit, Paul says, and you'll be empowered to love. And you'll have self-discipline. When things get really hard in, Christian, in the Christian life, in Christian ministry... You're tempted to, to go on a tangent or lose focus, to throw in the towel. Remember that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, self-discipline. Paul says, fan the God's Spirit into flame and, and you'll have this supernatural ability to keep doing what honours Christ even when it's hard. This is Paul's first command to Timothy and it's really the most important command. Fan into flame the gift of God's spirit that is in you. Uh, his second command in the first part of verse 8 uh, is really, uh, do not be ashamed to speak for Christ. 
or to use Paul's words, uh, to testify about our Lord. Now, I assume that Paul says that because he knows that Timothy might be ashamed to speak for Christ or to testify that Jesus is Lord, uh, which maybe seems a little bit strange for us. We maybe tend to think, oh, Timothy's a pastor, uh, he's a courageous Christian in the early church. Why would, be, why would he ever be ashamed to testify that Jesus is Lord? Well, maybe because uh, his own Jewish people uh, had uh, rejected Jesus as a heretic and because the Romans had executed Jesus as a criminal. So basically everyone around Timothy would have said it's a shameful thing to declare that Jesus is Lord, to testify that Jesus is Lord. So why should Timothy do it? Well, because he's someone who's filled with God's spirit, you see. In 1 First, in Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, no one can declare that Jesus is Lord except by the power of God's spirit. In John 14 to 16, we see that the spirit of God always wants to point people to Christ, always wants to glorify Christ. The spirit of God wants to lift Christ up before others uh, that they would be drawn to him and believe in him. So Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame God's spirit in your heart, in your life, and you will not be ashamed to speak for Christ. You'll have the boldness, the courage, the power to do that. Even when it means suffering, not because of your boldness and power, but because the spirit of God is empowering you. Then in the second half of verse 8, uh, this is the third command, Paul commands Timothy uh, to join with him in suffering for Christ and for the gospel. Uh, and notice the end of verse 8. How is it that Timothy's going to be able to suffer for Christ and the gospel? It is by the power of God. So I, I hope you can see, like as I said before uh, I started my sermon, I want you to see that what I'm saying is actually what God's saying. So I hope you can see from verses 6 to 8 that Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, fan into flame God's spirit in your heart and in your life and you will have the power to keep speaking and suffering for Christ and for the gospel of Christ. And in verses 9 and 10, Paul reminds Timothy of why it's worth suffering for the gospel. First, it's worth suffering for the gospel because uh, the gospel isn't just uh, in the same category as some generic uh, kind of pseudo-religious spiritual self-help stuff that you might find in a bookshop or on Amazon, you know. The gospel's not just good advice. The gospel is wonderful good news. Notice the start of verse 9. The gospel is about how God has saved us. How God has saved us through Jesus Christ, his Son. What do we need to be saved from? Well, look at verse 10. Paul says, Christ Jesus, our saviour, our rescuer, has destroyed death. So the gospel's worth suffering for because it's about life and death. It's about heaven and hell. Like there's a lot riding on the gospel. The gospel's about whether people live with Christ and his people forever or don't. How is it that Christ has destroyed death? I've got to remember that we need to be saved from death because uh, all of us have a kind of innate, insatiable desire for autonomy. 
the word autonomy, it's kind of uh, means self-rule. Basically, we want to throw off God's rule and rule our own lives. That's what the Bible calls sin. Uh, this is what we deeply crave, autonomy. Uh, of course, in throwing off God, rejecting God, running away from God, we've cut ourselves off from the one who gives life to everyone and everything, the source of life. So spiritually speaking, we're dead now on the inside and later on all of us will die. But what's Paul saying in verse 10? He's saying that in Christ's death on the cross, Christ bore that penalty of death that all of us deserve for our sin. He died the death that we deserve to die and so in that sense he destroyed death. Not in the sense that no one will ever die again, like we know people are still dying, right? But in the sense that those who believe in Christ will receive the promise of life from verse 1. They'll receive new spiritual life now with Christ and new physical life with Christ and his people later. This is why the gospel is worth suffering for. It's not spiritual tiddlywinks. It's not fun and games. It is life and death. It's worth suffering for it's about eternal life with God or not and lots of people would say well that's all very well but it's only for those who are good enough right that's Christianity like if you're good enough to get into eternal life that's what you'll get but that's not what Paul says here notice he says it's not by our works indeed Paul says that the gift of God's grace that we receive in salvation was given to people before the beginning of time now, I've got a vision impairment, so I won't be able to see if you put your hand up, but uh, if you were around before the beginning of time, I invite you to put your hand up, uh, in which case you're someone who might have received salvation uh, based on your own performance. Uh, but uh, for most of us, I suspect we weren't around before the beginning of time, in which case our, the salvation that we receive through faith in Jesus cannot be based on our own works or performance, can it? It must be a gift of God's grace. And Paul says this gift of God's grace that existed before the beginning of time has been revealed in Jesus, God's Son. So why is it worth suffering for Christ and the gospel? Paul says because it's only in Christ and the gospel that we can find grace and life. Apart from Christ, there is no grace to be found because the grace of God is revealed in Christ Jesus, God's Son. Apart from the good news of Christ, there is no spiritual life to be found. There is no physical life to be found. So the gospel is worth suffering for. Paul's writing to Timothy to say about the power to keep speaking and suffering for Christ. And he says it's found in fanning into flame God's spirit in his heart, in his life. That's all very well. Uh, if I said fan into flame that fire over there, you'd probably get out some bellows and kind of try to, you know, pump it up a little bit. How do we fan into flame God's spirit? You know, like, it's sort of, I don't really know how to do that. I think we've got to remember that God's spirit and his word always work together. So if God's spirit is a fire, uh, God's word is like the fuel. Some of you go to La Trobe Uni Christian Union, and I think the Monday night event is still called Fuel. Uh, maybe it came from this, I don't know why. I don't know if it did, but this is the basic idea. If you're filled with God's Spirit, 
Uh, you can fan God's spirit into fame by feeding, feeding it with the fuel of God's word. What might that look like? Well, we've got to remind ourselves and one another of the core truths of the gospel, uh, particularly in the context of speaking and suffering for Christ. I think we've got to remind ourselves and one another uh, that if we lose some status or respect in the eyes of the world around us for the sake of Christ, our status in God's eyes is completely secure. Why would you trade off the status of being a dearly loved child of God for a little bit more status in the eyes of the world? That's some fuel that you can throw onto the fire of God's spirit. And we've got to remind ourselves and one another that even if we're rejected by our family, our friends, our colleagues for the sake of Christ, we'll never be rejected by the one who really matters, our loving Heavenly Father. He tells us that in Christ Jesus, absolutely nothing can separate us from his love. Again, why would you trade off uh, the love? Why would you trade the love of the one who made you and loved you and gave his son for you? Why would you trade that for a little bit more love and acceptance from the people of this world? That's fuel that you can throw onto the fire of God's spirit in your heart. This doesn't happen that much in Australia these days yet, but we do have to remind ourselves that if we're oppressed or restricted or arrested, imprisoned for the sake of Christ by the authorities of this world, we have to remind ourselves that Christ has set us free from the authorities that really matter. We might be in prison, but we're not in prison to sin anymore or to Satan or to death because Christ has destroyed death. We remind ourselves of these core truths. We do it by ourselves. We do it with one another and we'll fan into flame God's spirit in our lives. It'll be, God's spirit will be stirred up and we'll have the power. Sure, we'll stumble. We'll fail plenty of times, but we'll have the power together in an increasingly hostile world to keep speaking and suffering for Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, uh, we confess that uh, often uh, we are ashamed to be public uh, about the fact that we're a Christian or to speak openly as Christians. Sometimes that's wise and appropriate and the professional thing to do. Other times we know we're just doing it because we lack courage and boldness. I thank you, Father, that our standing before you isn't dependent on any way on us being courageous and speaking and suffering for Christ, but is dependent on Christ alone. And we thank you, Father, for giving us the gift of your spirit. And we pray that we might keep throwing the fuel of your word and the great promises of the gospel onto the fire of your spirit in our hearts, and that your spirit might be stirred up and fed and fanned into flame and that we might be empowered to speak and suffer for Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.